Father in heaven, good to be here with the church today. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters and open up our Bibles and place our feet firmly on them. Father, that is a a gift that sometimes I think we take for granted. Oftentimes we do that because we still have questions about the validity of Scripture and whether we can hang our hat on it and plant our feet there. It's my prayer this morning that we will answer those questions, that we will see the gift of your word for what it is, the insight into who you are. It's a guide for our feet, directs our paths, can change our lives. And Lord, it is through the study of the word that we grow in relationship with you. So I'm praying this morning that we will all be inspired to love the Bible and as a result to love you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. As we get into this, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you from the book of Psalms. King David actually penned these words. The past few months, I've been really captured by them and have shared them with some different people. This is what David wrote. He said, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. David was speaking, of course, of the Word of God when he said that his foot stood on level ground. In relationship with God, he could say that I have a firm foundation underneath me because of that relationship. And he begins the whole process by saying, as a result of that level ground, I can walk in my integrity. Things are okay between me and you, Lord, because my feet stand on this level ground. I love that. We're going to be exploring the whole idea of it this morning, beginning with a parable that, to the best of my knowledge, was written by a man named John Piper about 20 years ago. John wrote it, and he tells it well. He titled this story, The Parable of the Anvil. I'll do my best to do justice to it, but John does it really well. Once upon a time, in a land before cars or machines... When the roads were covered by horses, chariots, and wagons, there was a blacksmith shop with a heavy, well-worn anvil within it. A little farm boy that had never left the farm was invited to go to town with his father one day. He was excited about the opportunity, having never been there. He wanted to see all that the town had to offer. As they walked in, he had hold of his father's hands. His eyes were captured by all these new sights. His ears were listening to all these new sounds. Everything brand new to him experienced for the first time. They were walking down the road. He was holding on to his dad when he heard a clang, clang, clang. He'd never heard anything like that. And he looked up at his dad. His dad knew instantly that he was wondering what it was. He said, that's the blacksmith shop. Come with me and I'll show you. They walked over to that shop and the little boy's eyes were as wide as could be as he stared inside there. He saw a huge man, a strong man, holding on to a hammer like he had never seen before with a long handle and a huge head on it. This man stood there swinging it above his head as if he was trying to chop down a tree. With each swing, the hammer came down on a hot piece of metal against that anvil and it clanged, clanged clanged. Little boy would wince every time that hammer hit the anvil as if it was hitting him himself. 
His father said to him, Son, that's how they make wagon wheels and tools and plows and all the things that we have. And the little boy couldn't care less. His eyes were focused on two things, the hammer and the anvil. As the blacksmith continued working, at one point he needed to catch his breath, so he stopped swinging the hammer. And in that instant, he saw the little boy standing there. The little boy said to him, aren't you afraid you're going to break that, speaking of the anvil? And the blacksmith said, Son, this anvil is a hundred years old. It has worn out many hammers. That's pretty good. Now, John Piper tells that parable to equate the anvil to the Bible, to the Word of God. This is how he does it. Read along with me. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. In every generation, new, huge, heavy hammers are forged against the truth of the Bible. And strong men lift the hammers and pound on Scripture. People with no historical perspective, like little boys who've never been to town, see it and say, surely the Bible will be destroyed. But others who know history a little better say, this Bible was forged in a furnace of divine truth and have worn out many hammers. Like I said, Piper tells the story well, and he connects it to the truth of the strength of God's Word very well. He is capturing, for the most part, what the prophet Isaiah would say in the 40th chapter of his book, verse 8. Isaiah writes, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. It is an anvil. That's exactly what it is, an anvil. And people have swung hammer after hammer against the strength of this anvil, believing that they could destroy it, and they can't. It stands up generation after generation, hammer after hammer. Still, a lot of people struggle to believe the Bible, to trust the Bible. They struggle to surrender to the truth of the Bible and the relationship that it offers. So they stop swinging the hammers. They stop testing it. They stop finding its strength. This morning, we are going to swing some hammers against this anvil. My prayer is that if you're one of those people that has struggled believing the truth of the Bible, you will leave here today laying down some of the hammers. My prayer is also for those that have never swung them. Instead, they have held back, afraid to swing hammers. The Bible is an anvil that will stand up to anything that you want to bring against it. That has been proven over and over and over again. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to hold it in your hands. We're going to open it together and we're going to look at how strong this anvil is. Let me lay a foundation for you as we get started into this. This is background on what the Bible is. One of the most common mistakes that people make when they grab hold of the Bible is believing that it is a book that is meant to be read from beginning to end. It is not a book. It is a collection of 66 books. Though the Bible is a compilation of all of them, they all stand alone. And that is a unique characteristic of this anvil. 66 books written by 40 authors over the course of 2,000 years. Isn't that an amazing idea? 66 books penned by 40 different authors over the course of 2,000 years. This thing is something. 
In fact, it is unlike anything else that you will ever see. I like to challenge people if they're really skeptical about the strength of the Bible to go to any library of their choice, seek out 66 different books written by 40 different people over the course of 2,000 years, put them together and find some sort of cohesiveness. You cannot do it. The Bible is the only one that brings that about. And that's what makes it so strong. That's what makes it the anvil that it is. If you were to pick it apart, let's just start with the Old Testament. You would find that the Old Testament covers roughly 4,000 years of history. The creation of the world and the establishment of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. From the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, that's what it's talking about. Then you get into a 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew called the intertestamental period where no books were written. And it would appear that God was fairly quiet during that time. But then we get to Matthew. Matthew through Revelation covering another period of history. Maybe you've studied it and you know how long that period is measured against the 4,000 years of the Old Testament. And maybe you haven't. If you haven't, it's a little bit shocking. The New Testament covers roughly from Matthew to Revelation 100 years. So 4,000 years in the Old Testament, 100 years in the New. But do you know what happens in that 100 years? The advent of two things that changed the world. The first is the most significant. That covers the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest world-changing, society-changing, culture-changing, life-changing event anyone has ever known. God knew that people would bring hammers against the anvil of Jesus. They would swing them time and time again. So this is what he did in the Bible. This is so amazing. He inspired four different people to write four different accounts about Jesus' life. And those four different accounts all measure up against one another. That's part of the strength of the Bible because God knew more than anything else Jesus Christ was going to be attacked for years and years and years, centuries and millennium after his birth, death, and resurrection. Then by the time we get to the book of Acts, we discover the advent of another society, culture, life-changing event. That's the birth of the church. And every book after the book of Acts solidifies what we read in that book and brings it all together to say that the church is God's gift to his people after Jesus ascended into heaven. And in that hundred year period, those two things set the course for the world that we live in today. And then you find your way to the end, to the book of Revelation. And what a book that is. Curious to many people, terrifying to others. It leaves people wondering and scratching their head, predominantly because it covers not the events of the past, but the events that are yet to come. So you have a 4,000-year period of time, a 100-year period of time, and a time yet to come, all captured in these 66 books, all wrapped up in this anvil. Swing your hammer against it and see what you can come up with. It will stand up. And it has worn out many hammers. One of the first questions that people ask, the first hammer that is swung against this anvil, deals with the truth that we just talked about. If this is 66 books written by 40 different authors, how can we call it the Word of God? That doesn't make sense. It sounds like the Word of man. 40 different men wrote these books. How does that work? Well, the Bible answers that question. 
Because remember, it'll stand up to those hammers. Let's go to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 16. This is what the Bible says about itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love the fact, absolutely love the fact, that the New International Version of the Bible would say this in that verse, all Scripture is God-breathed, which means the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, was guiding the hands of those that were writing. In the Old Testament, that would have been the Spirit of the Lord. In the New Testament, it would have been the Holy Spirit, both being the breath of God. Therefore, the Bible becomes the very Word of God because it was breathed by God, inspired by God, every word of it. So it's solid. It's an anvil that cannot be destroyed. It is strong and it has stood all of these generations. Every test that has been thrown against it has proven it to be true over and over and over again. It is the Word of God. Still, hammers swing and they bring a lot of power with them. They've led a number of people astray because they have not recognized that the anvil cannot be destroyed. One of the questions that comes in the form of those hammers is, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? That's a philosophical question that can take you all kinds of different ways, beginning with this simple question, what is truth? If you don't know what truth is, then answering the question is very difficult. But if you do know what truth is, which is extremely easy to define, then this hammer has no power and the anvil will stand. Truth defined simply correlates with reality. Truth correlates with reality. And if we understand the truth of the Bible based on the reality that it teaches, then everything becomes very easy. Here are five simple common truths that come right out of Scripture, and they are hard to argue against. Take a look at these. Now, we're not going to read each one of these verses right now. I encourage you to do that a little bit later. I do encourage you to take notes because these truths set the stage for the strength of the anvil. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 teaches us that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's in the Old Testament, the very first verse of the Old Testament. Let's jump all the way to the New Testament and see the strength of the anvil. When we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we find out that God revealed himself through creation. And Romans 1 tells us he did that so that men are without excuse. All men are without excuse because God has shown himself through creation. And part of what he has shown is his righteousness that forces us to look at ourselves. And here's what we learn. This is a truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We have all sinned and need a Savior. Boil that down, this is what it means. We are separated from God because of our sin. There's a huge gap. And if we want to close that gap, if we have any desire to close that gap, then a truth of the Bible that exists within the anvil will help us see how to do that. That can only be done through Jesus. Look at this. John 14, verse 6. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to God except through Him. That's it. 
When people understand that, they bring another hammer against the anvil, which is the Word of God, and they ask questions like this. Well, okay, Jesus is the way to a relationship with God, but how do I do that? And the anvil actually tells us. This is pretty amazing, Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved through faith in Him and nothing else. There's nothing you can do that brings you into relationship with God. Jesus did all of it, and we are saved through faith in Him. That's the way it works. If you can grab hold of those five truths, then the anvil that is the Word of God will begin to stand up to every hammer you ever bring against it. Still, oftentimes, that's not enough for people. They want more. Thankfully, there's more. Because the anvil will always withstand every hammer. People always ask, what is there outside of Scripture that can help? Well, there are some things. The first thing we know is the physical evidence of the Bible. Now, here's what I mean by that. We actually have in our possession certain elements of the original scrolls that were written, but we have many translations after those originals. Some of the first translations of the scrolls exist. We have them. They are there for anybody to study. Now, here's one of the things that makes them so impressive. We have them not in just one language, but 15 languages. Nothing was ever translated into that many languages that long ago, except for the Bible. We have 15 different languages of original translations. That's unbelievable. That's the physical evidence that says the Bible is real. We have extra biblical writing that comes alongside those things to validate the actual translations. All of that is amazing. But still, for a lot of people, that isn't enough. They want more, so they swing another hammer against the anvil of the Bible and say, well, there has to be more. There is. And that's part of what makes it so strong. Are you ready for this? You've heard me say, if you've worshipped with us for a long time, that science does not prove the Bible. The Bible proves science. Today, science is catching up to the Bible, particularly through the science of archaeology. As they are digging all across the Mideast, in the Holy Lands, and outside of the Holy Lands, almost on a daily basis, they are discovering things that are proving the Bible, except the Bible said it for a long time. So the Bible is simply standing true and science is catching up. You can get on the internet and read a number of credible sources that will show you how exciting it is today as archaeology is discovering all of these truths of the Bible that are causing skeptics from years and years and years ago to stop and say, wow, maybe, maybe we better give this a second look. So science is there. And then there are the internal consistencies of the Bible that no one can explain. We've already talked a little about that. 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of 2,000 years. And from beginning to end, there is an interwoven connectedness all through them. You cannot find that in any other collection of works, only the Bible. And that makes it an anvil. 
internal consistencies mean things like this. Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. Paul was quoting from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was telling us that Jesus was coming in the New Testament. There are books in the Old Testament that validate what the book of Revelation says about things that are yet to come. Internal consistencies all the way through Scripture. This is amazing and it's strong. Swing your hammer and you will find out that it stands up every time. This past week, something pretty incredible happened in our country. Maybe you saw this on the news, maybe you didn't. But in Washington, D.C., we just opened the first ever Museum of the Bible. 430,000 square feet at a cost of a half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars. That museum was established to help everyone understand the strength of the Judeo-Christian Bible. Written on the huge, massive doors leading into it is the first chapter of the book of Genesis, establishing as fact that God created the heavens and the earth in seven literal days. Once that was established, you can go into this new museum where by their own record, they are saying the exhibits focus on the Bible's history, its stories and its impact on the world, including science, the judicial systems, and even fashion. Those are the ways this anvil has shaped the world that we live in. And thankfully today, can you believe this? In the year 2017, we just opened a museum in the United States of America in a place that everybody travels to look for history to say, pay attention to the Bible. And we spent a half a billion dollars to do it. That's pretty incredible. Which, by the way, we didn't spend that. Private investors and private donors that believe in the strength of the Word of God spent that amount of money because they want everybody to know that this anvil stands up. That's, that's cool. That is just cool. There is no other way around it because that's the strength of this book. It really is. Those that discover that will discover truth like this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus himself says these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. King David would say, I will set my feet on level ground so that in the great assembly I can bless the Lord because I have heard the words and I have believed them. Let the storms come, let the rains fall, let the winds blow. I will stand on level ground because my foot is on the anvil of God's word. That's that's good teaching. And Jesus just said, pay attention, because if you don't, when the storms come and the winds blow and the rains fall, great will be your fall. That's a warning every person ought to pay attention to. If you don't heed the strength of this anvil and what God had to say, great will be your fall. Take it to the bank. And here's how we know that. When you learn to trust the Bible, you will learn to trust God. Listen to that again. When you learn to trust the Bible, 
you will learn to trust God. It is an easy path to follow. David would say this in the book of Psalms, 37th chapter. You don't have to turn, just listen. Starting in verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way. Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it lends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous." Trust the anvil of God's word, you will trust God. And stop comparing yourself to other people. Being anxious about what God is doing with other people, you will be concerned about what God is doing with you. And it will be righteousness that drives you. Righteousness is right relationship with God. That will be what drives you. And right here, right here is the path to that. So swing your hammer, pound away, And see what happens because this will always stand. Always. And when we get past some of those big hammers, the ones that we all have to work our way through, we pick up some smaller ones. And some of those smaller hammers take us down other paths. Oftentimes very personal, but still poignant paths. Those hammers have questions attached to it like this. How do I apply this to my life? If I believe it, how do I use it? I get it, preacher, it's a good tool and it's the Word of God, but I don't understand it when I read it. There's a lot of people that say that. I can't just pick it up and figure out what God is trying to teach me when I need it the most. So how do I make this a part of my everyday life? How do I do it? Well, I appreciate the words of Woodrow Wilson, our president, our past president, He said, I feel sorry for men who do not read the Bible every day. Listen again. I feel sorry for men who do not read the Bible every day. Because to pick it up and find stories that you have read scores of time will allow you to discover that they will breathe new life every time you read them. That's Woodrow Wilson. His answer to that question, read the Bible. Get familiar with it. But still, people would say as they swing hammers, that sounds great, read the Bible, but if you don't understand it, why am I reading it? Well, I want to help you understand it today. I'm going to give you three questions that can always help in Bible study. I use them all the time. You can apply them to any passage that you read and get to the bottom of it. Three questions that can change the way you study God's Word and you can begin to apply what you learn. Here are the three questions. What did the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? How do I apply it? Three questions again, and you can use them with any passage. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? How do I apply it? Now, I'm going to show you a very easy passage 
to use these questions with. DC, where are you at? Did we find the notebooks? Okay, at the end of the service, we are going to pass out some notebooks like we do every week. If you would be interested in taking a class that goes deeper into how this works, I would be very interested in teaching it. All we need you to do is write next to your name in those notebooks, I'm interested in the class. And we will see if there's enough interest to do it. Deanie, hopefully after the first of the year, will teach you how this works on a deeper level. But let me show you right now how to do it with a very simple passage. Go with me to the book of Matthew again. We're going to do this pretty fast, so you're going to have to hang with me. We're almost done. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. You've heard this before. A lot of people have heard it once or twice, and then they don't ever read it again. But you should. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now let's use the three questions and I'll show you how to study a passage of scripture. Number one, what did the Bible say? Well, that's an easy one in this passage to uncover. It's right there in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's a lot to chew on. It really is. Jesus was led into the wilderness, into the desert, by the Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit, to be tempted. That was the purpose. That's what the Bible said. It's very plain. It's very clear. You don't have to have a PhD to uncover it. That's very simple. Now... It does cause some deeper questions, like why? Because if Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit and we believe in the Trinity, which at Libby Christian Church we do, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, why was Jesus led out there by the Spirit for this purpose? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does when you start digging just a little bit deeper into this. If Jesus was going to be our high priest and he was also going to be the sacrifice for our sins, he had to be perfect. So he had to go through all kinds of different temptations, tests, in order for that to happen. And he had to shine forth sinless. So the Bible says that this period of time, Jesus was being tempted just like that. 40 days without food, 40 days in weakness, 40 days of temptation that you would experience on hordes of steroids. That's what was going on right there. Now, if we get into that second question, what does the Bible mean? We can actually discover why this happened. So the first question just helps you see the what's going on. The second question helps you understand why it's going on. So what does the Bible mean by all of this? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Keep your finger there in Matthew 4, but go to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now pay close attention, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does the Bible mean? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went through all of that for us. He did all of that for us, that we might have confidence, so that we can trust that when we need it the most, there is a grace available to us extended by God. That's what the Bible meant by Jesus going out there. That's why He went into the wilderness, for us. Everything Jesus did was for us. So He's in the wilderness going through this horrible time of temptation. Remember, it's like anything you've ever experienced on hordes of steroids. Jesus is going through all of that for us so that our confidence against sin can grow and we can find the grace that we need in order to overcome temptation ourselves and grow in righteousness relationship with God. Isn't that cool? That's how it works. So now I know what the Bible said, I know what the Bible meant, but how do I apply it? So I I get that Jesus did this, but how do I apply it? Well, let's look at how He applied it. He used the Word of God to overcome temptation. The same thing is available to us. The anvil. He used the anvil. When He came up against the worst temptations of His life, He chose to quote Scripture to rebuke the enemy still works. It still works. So how do I apply it? By immersing myself in the Word of God, by memorizing it, by committing it to my heart and to my mind. Jesus did it, but He wasn't alone. King David did as well. This is from Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I like the way other translations read. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, when we stop swinging hammers against the anvil, we will put our foot on the anvil and we will stand on level ground. And we will find the strength that we need because that's where we have chosen to plant our feet. Put your feet on the anvil and your confidence will grow. Put your feet on the anvil in the level ground on which it stands and the grace and the mercy that you need from God will flow into your life and you will begin to experience victory, my friends. That's the way it works. When you get to a place that you stop swinging hammers against the anvil, you will use the anvil to grow in relationship with God. Not in religion, in relationship. That's the way it works. When you start reading the Bible because of relationship and not just out of a sense of duty, it will become a part of you. When you start reading the Bible that you might learn more about God and not just feel like you put a check mark on a page of things you were supposed to do, your relationship in righteousness will grow. But if you need to swing some hammers, do it. If you need to pound against the anvil that is the Word of God, remember this. It is thousands of years old and it has worn out every hammer that has ever come against it. So swing away and see what you learn. You're not going to crack it, destroy it, or even chip it. Swing away 
and then put your foot on it. Stand on level ground so that when you are in the great assembly, you will bless the Lord. Put your foot on the Word of God. Put your foot there and let it hold you up. This is an amazing anvil. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, the strength of the Bible is, we can't even begin to describe it, explain it. And at times we struggle even to understand it, but we know it is strong because of you. And that's, that's dramatic. That's remarkable. That's miraculous. The fact that you've given it to us fits in all of those categories as well. Remarkable, dramatic, miraculous. Thank you for giving it to us. Lord, help us put our foot on it and stand on level ground in your presence. In the great assembly, we want nothing more than to bless you. I know there are people with us today that are still swinging hammers of skepticism and criticism. They don't know whether they can trust the Bible. They don't know whether it's true. Well, I pray that their answers will come quickly and their questions will fade away and they'll lay down their hammers. And I pray that they will choose then a surrendered relationship with you that trusts and grows and brings life. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.